If you're interested in what China's doing in Africa and the Global South, you're going to want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. We've indexed every major news story going back years, and it's easily searchable by country, topic, or keyword. Plus, we're the only source for daily analysis on all of the big stories related to Chinese engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. With a subscription, you'll enjoy full access to the site. Plus, you'll get our popular daily email newsletter that comes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. To sign up, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very busy January for Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Remember, in the beginning of the month, he started his year, as he has done for the past 32 years, traveling to Africa. And he went to Eritrea and then also to Kenya. And then later he went on to three other Indian Ocean states. But immediately upon his return, he turned right back around into some very high-profile diplomacy in the eastern Chinese city of Wuxi, which is just outside of Shanghai, for what we called in our newsletter the diplomatic equivalent of speed dating when he met with five foreign ministers back-to-back from both Persian Gulf states and Turkey – as well as the Secretary General of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So during that week, he met with the foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, Bahrain, Iran, and Turkey, all in the space of one week. Now, it's really important because this was an absolutely unprecedented week because never before have we seen such a large coalition of Gulf states work in concert with one another to fly to China the way that Saudi Oman, Kuwaiti, and Bahraini foreign ministers did, plus the GCC secretary, who all arrived at the same time. The Turkish and Iranian ministers, those meetings were held separately. But given that so many did arrive at the same time, I was actually a little bit surprised, Kobus, that there wasn't more of a group dynamic in those meetings. Uh, it didn't seem like they negotiated or had any bilat- or any multilateral meetings as all the meetings were bilateral, at least as far as we could see from the outside. The main highlight of the talks with the GCC was some expectation that Global Times was teasing and never came forward was a free trade agreement between China and the GCC. But it does highlight this incredible pivot to Asia that Gulf countries have now embarked on and in many ways have completed, which is understandable to a certain degree, given the fact that the U.S. is no longer in the mood to be as engaged in the region as it has over the past 60, 70 years, plus the fact that China is now Saudi Arabia's largest oil customer. It's also Iran's lifeline to the outside world. They've just signed a massive deal that we talked about last year and uh, we'll, we'll talk about again this year and is now starting to, to work up a little bit. Also, the Chinese are playing an instrumental role in the Iranian nuclear negotiations as well. And also the fact that the Chinese have emerged as one of the largest buyers of gas from the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and others. So it's an instrumental region economically for the Chinese and increasingly in the diplomatic realm as well. Now, while it seems that China's influence in the region is a relatively new phenomenon, scholars who follow this space, including our guest today, are going to tell you that this is a process that has actually been underway for a very, very long time. But a lot of people haven't been paying enough attention to what's going on. So to them, particularly folks in Washington, this is something new. And it's making them very, very nervous. Now, that anxiety was on full display last week at a webinar hosted by the Middle East Policy Institute in Washington. And I'd like to play a couple of sound bites for you just to help set up our conversation about the anxiety in the United States. The first person we're going to hear from 
is a gentleman by the name of John Alterman, who's the Middle East Program Director at the influential think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And he really laid out the case as to why he thinks China is bad for the Middle East. China also insists on bilateral ties where China is a giant. China doesn't obey the rules. China muscles countries to support Chinese demands. In this Iran relationship, for example, China represents more than 30% of Iranian trade. Iran represents less than 1% of Chinese trade. And you know who who the major partner is, uh, who the senior partner is in that relationship. China talks about win-win relationships. But in reality, countries that are in relationships with China have to deal with the fact that China is a behemoth that doesn't believe in big international rules-based orders, but believes in a relationship where it can squeeze the smaller partner. And we've seen that turning into debt traps in Sri Lanka, in Africa, and elsewhere. Oh, there we go, Kobus. You know you can't go through a webinar in Washington without at least one debt trap reference, but that wasn't the only, <laughs> I mean, it's just like almost a guaranteed thing. Again, you heard some things there. I think if you're sitting outside of the United States, particularly in the Middle East, and you're hearing about China bullying in the Middle East, it's a little bit weird to hear that coming from an American stakeholder, given the fact of what's happened with the United States in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East. But let's continue. Another comment came from former Virginia Congressman Jim Moran, who's also a board member of the Middle East Policy Council and a senior policy advisor at the Washington office of the law firm Nelson and Mullins. Let's take a listen to hear how he differentiates the U.S. and China in the Middle East. I worry greatly that there is an alliance developing. If you see where the Belt and Road Initiative has taken China, they they go into a country and generally they're fairly well received. Obviously, they bring a lot of money with them. Now, they're not bringing as much financial investment in, uh, in hard infrastructure as they, they had, but they've got a lot to offer. In terms of the Middle East, there's a critical element in terms of the relationship uh, that which has been, uh, I think, difficult with the United States because we, when we talk with Middle East rulers, we invariably bring up the things that uh, trouble our population, our Congress, and uh, our, our State Department and, and Defense Department. But when China talks with uh, most Middle East rulers, uh, the Middle East rulers don't care about the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They don't care about uh, what has happened in Hong Kong. They do the same. If China wanted to invade Taiwan, they're certainly not going to stand in the way. Human rights is not an issue. Authoritarianism is not an issue. Uh, suppression of free speech, that's certainly not an issue. And so there isn't that kind of clash that invariably occurs uh, in our diplomatic discussions with the Middle East. I have no idea what country he is talking about when he says our, because he is not talking about the United States, who for seven decades looked the other way on human rights violations in Saudi Arabia, who has made Egypt its second largest recipient of foreign aid, who really did nothing in the conflict in Yemen, did not stand up during the Arab Spring in, in, in Bahrain and Qatar and other countries. I mean, the revisionism is shocking to me, Kobus. But anyway, this is what passes for discourse in Washington today. And this is what the discourse is about the Chinese in the Middle East. In many ways, it sounds quite similar to what we've heard about the Chinese in Africa, too, from Washington folks. Yes, it does sound very similar. And, and the fact that, that both China, like that both um, Africa and, and Sri Lanka are coming up in the debt tracking narrative is not a surprise, obviously. But it's also interesting how, how you know, kind of the, how Africa is increasingly being used as this kind of shorthand to, to talk about other regions' engagement with China, even though the, the shorthand is based on completely, you know, kind of like fail, false narratives in, in many cases. So, you know, kind of it is interesting that the, that the anxiety is kind of mounting like this. But I also wonder, you know, like so much of this narrative is, is, is kind of based on half-truths that I wonder, you know, I wonder kind of, 
uh, you know, kind of what, what the kind of what, what kind of policy it's going to lead to. It's it's a little bit worrying. It is very concerning, and partly because the arguments that are presented in Washington by the people that you just heard from CSIS, from the Middle East Policy Institute, and others, and the former congressman are are very unsophisticated and unrefined, and that's why a new book that just came out. The Routledge Handbook on China-Middle East Relations is so important because it needs to be read in Washington and other capitals to understand the complexity of this and the historical context, and it's nowhere near as binary. The new book is available now out on Amazon. It was edited by Jonathan Fulton, who is an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi and a longtime scholar of China, Middle East, and Persian Gulf affairs. He's been on our show before, and we are thrilled to have him back. Jonathan, very good afternoon to you, and congratulations on the book. Thanks, guys. I'm thrilled to be back. It's it's always great. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Really, uh, always listen. Well, it's great to have you, and we're really looking forward to our conversation today. For regular listeners of our program, you will recognize quite a few of the contributors to this new book, Mohammed al-Sudari, Lina ben Abdallah. Uh, Mohammed al-Sudari, by the way, is from the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Lina is from Wake Forest University in the U.S., Andrea Giselli from Fudan University in Shanghai, and Alessandro Arduino from the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore, all former guests on our show, and all have written chapters in this new book. There are also a number of Chinese and European scholars who also wrote chapters for the book. So it really does provide an excellent cross-section of different views on the issues of China's engagement in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. Jonathan, let's start first with, I'd like to get your your take on the foreign minister's meeting, and then also a little bit of an assessment of your views of the discourse in Washington. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the issues that you raised in your book. Let's start with the meetings in Wuxi, and give us your take on the outcomes and the significance of those meetings. Right. So it was it was really interesting. You know, like you, a lot of the points you brought up in your intro. You know, to see so much, um, so many high level reps from the Middle East all showing up at the same time. If you hadn't been paying attention, it it would have been really quite surprising. But you know, just looking at the, the context of looking at what's happened just in the last year, right, where Wang Yi made two really big trips to Middle East, North Africa. Last March, he visited six countries, and then in July, he visited uh, Syria, Egypt, and uh, Algeria, I believe. You know, there's been a lot going on, and, and Yang Jiechi also was was in the Middle East last year as well. So there's been a lot of outreach, you know, and what's interesting to me is when you look at the readouts or the press releases or whatever from the, the meetings last week, there really wasn't a lot, you know. It's not like there were any big game-changing outcomes. They, they work towards things that have already been started. They, you know, implementation and, and just kind of the kind of stuff you do when you've got a mature bilateral relationship, right? You don't have to have these big splashy announcements. So they're working towards the, the free trade agreement. Well, they've been working towards that forever. The Korean president was in Abu Dhabi right after that, actually, and, and they're also working on a, on a FTA with the GCC as well. So you know, really what, what that says to me is just interesting to see the GCC is kind of acting as, as a block again, you know, that there's some kind of coherence uh, from the group that had been lacking since the split with Qatar in 2017. So yeah, like in terms of like the big headline grabbing outcomes of the meetings, it wasn't much. It was just kind of underscored, like you said in your intro, you know, these are these are really deep, multifaceted relationships. It's not just about energy. It's not just about trade. It's not just about Belt and Road. They, they're they working on a lot of big stuff together. And this just kind of emphasized that. I thought it was interesting that, you know, you saw this block from the GCC arrive and then from Turkey and Iran. I think also the messaging was pretty useful for Beijing, right? That that all of these important people are coming to visit China at a time when when they're not really receiving a lot of people. But you're right. I think it did draw a lot of negative attention in, in a lot of Western capitals where they, they weren't really too happy to see this. Since the, the visit of the Iranian foreign minister, there's also been this, you know, a flurry of reports on, you know, on oil sales um, from Iran to, to China and complaints from the U.S. about, about the, the sanctions busting around that, 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 those sales. 
And also, you know, there, there's um, soon there'll be a, another bout uh, of of, na- of joint naval operations between Iran, Russia, and China. So I was wondering if you could give us, like, take the temperature of the of the the China-Iran relationship, you know, and 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 also, you know, how how the discourse around that relationship is is developing in in the West. Yeah. So I mean, I get it because. I think in Washington, there's nothing that's going to be scarier than China, Russia, and Iran, or any combination of those three. So the discourse, I think, is really um, highly politicized. And because of that, I think it's usually wrong, you know. So the last time there was that trilateral naval drill, it came just shortly after China had done like a, a very long, like two or three week drill with the Saudi Navy. So, you know, it's never as simple as just this axis of authoritarian states that are out to challenge the the, the U.S. preferred order, you know, like it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts and it doesn't, I think the idea that China and Iran represent a future alliance is really misguided. For one thing, China doesn't do alliances. They haven't for, for decades, but also because China doesn't see the Gulf the same way the U.S. does. And they, they're certainly not neutral. I think it's, it's pretty clear from looking at trade investment and, and overseas populations that they, they favor the, the Arab side of the Gulf. But they also see in Iran a pretty important, powerful country. So I think they're hedging, playing both sides, but I think they're doing it pretty skillfully. And in terms of the trade and, and, and sanctions and, and oil, I mean, we've seen this a lot with China over the years, which is why I, I, I always kind of warn people to, to take a deep breath before they get too excited about China and Iran. You know, what we saw last March when, when Wang Yi went to Tehran and they announced that they'd finally agreed on this this comprehensive strategic partnership that by the way had been in the works for five years at that point and again it doesn't there there's really nothing qualitative that's been announced from it it's just an agreement to work together so reports about chinese bases or or you know 400 million or four sorry 400 billion all this stuff is really hype basically it's taken them a long time just to get to this level and they announced last week that they're at the implementation stage so they're finally starting to to figure out what they're going to do with this partnership. But, you know, they signed a, uh, the same partnership with Saudi in 2016, and they activated immediately. The UAE one as well was signed in 2018, and they immediately appointed, you know, really high-profile uh, leaders from both countries to kind of uh, run the point guard on the partnership. And you've seen, like, meaningful stuff being done, like with the COVID cooperation and and vaccine trials and and manufacturing and stuff. So it doesn't really represent, to me, a big deal that China's starting to figure out what they want to do with the the Iran relationship or partnership. One thing I think that's interesting is they announced it last year, and then they announced in the summer that the roadblock towards Iran becoming a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, had been removed, that they they accepted its application to become a full member. Now, neither one of these two things, you know, like on the, on the face of it, they seem quite dramatic, but you, the partnership deal, the 25-year partnership and the SCO membership, neither one of them is really worth anything if Iran is still under sanctions. You know, if there's no financial institutions that can operate out of Iran, then then what's the good of having these, you know, investment mechanisms and, and deeper trade mechanisms? So I think what this is from the Chinese side, and this is speculation, but I've been watching it a long time. I think this is Beijing saying to Tehran, you go back to the JCPOA and you stop making a mess of the region. Look at what we have to offer you. You know, like you'll get this agreement with all of the investment and trade that comes with it. And we'll let you join the SCO and start working with all of its uh, powerful members. Like you have a path towards a normal country with deep relationships with important neighbors. Or keep antagonizing everybody and all we have is a bunch of words on paper that we're never going to do anything about. So I think it actually presents some pretty interesting opportunities, not just for Iran, but for its rivals or its enemies. It's interesting to see that this is one of the few instances in geopolitics where the U.S. and Chinese interests are quite aligned. Yeah. That's very much similar to what the United States wants the Iranians to do is to go back to the table, to get back into the JCPOA. And this seems like the two sides could actually work together for once. Yeah, well, I think just in general, you know, if you look at most parts of the world, China's interests and the U.S. interests don't line up very neatly at all. But in the Middle East, they they essentially want the same stuff. You know, they want freedom of navigation. They want regional stability. They want Gulf energy to make it out to global markets. You know, they, they want the same thing. They just have very different approaches. 
there are opportunities for coordination. You know, they don't have to necessarily compete in the Middle East like they do, say, in the South China Sea. But, you know, again, that's a political choice and, and the political environment in both countries is pretty hard to imagine anybody kind of articulating that or trying to enact it. You know, in, in relation to, to the to the oil buying particularly, um, we've seen the issue being raised more. Um, you know, the, so Reuters, for example, picked up a story from, a, from a, a shipping analytics company saying that China recently unloaded, I think, four, four million barrels of Iranian oil um, into a, a, a kind of a state facility. Um, and you know we've seen in the past kind of U.S. U.S. representatives um, or U.S. officials saying that they would prefer to approach this issue diplomatically. So I was wondering whether you see any kind of movement on this kind of diplomacy around this issue, and like what you know, kind of what what the kind of thinking is about the about the future of of the sanctions and oil buying itself. Because we've seen some you know so many reports over the over the last while that there's a kind of a, a kind of a laundering process where Iranian oil is kind of exported to a third country and then imported to China from there and you know kind of all kinds of different ways kind of ships shipping transponders being switched off and so on different ways that that they were kind of like getting around the sanctions so so you know kind of where do you see the kind of oil sanctions situation going in relation to China yeah so I'm really not a specialist on energy stuff and it's way too complicated for me but I think just looking at it politically a lot of these reports have been somewhat recent like we know that there was some you know, third country action. I think Malaysia was was seen as one that was doing it quite a lot earlier last year. And then there was uh, a really good report by Borsan Bazaar, I think, that said the UAE uh, might also be involved in this. But I think, again, like maximum pressure just decimated Iran's economy. And I think most people just accept that if not for the Chinese support, then, then it, it would have probably collapsed economically. So I can get why, you know, the Trump administration especially wasn't happy that China was was doing this um, because, you know, the, the policy was designed to, to, to do that, to, to break Iran's economy, right, and force it to change its behavior. And that China wasn't willing to play along, uh, obviously, it was no doubt quite frustrating. But, you know, it also demonstrated, I think, to a lot of other countries that China, if it sees a country as an important partner, then it's going to support them. And, you know, if, if it's the, the threat of action against the U.S., I think especially since the trade war and the political problems between China and the U.S. over the past five years or so, I think China's gotten much more comfortable with that idea of standing up to the U.S. I mean, it's a great domestic political tool, right, to say, look, we're, we're, we're a big, strong party that's going to look out for you and we're not going to get pushed around. And then it's also, I think, useful with, with other countries that are having a hard time with the relationship with the U.S. as well. So it's not really surprising to me. I don't know what will come of it, but I imagine, again, like I think China's showing Iran a lot of possibilities should they return to the JCPOA. It could be that if, if Iran doesn't, and again, this is speculation, but I imagine Beijing would say, look, you're, uh, you're really messing up our plans for the region and we're not going to support you forever if, if Iran doesn't come back to the table in an honest and productive way, I imagine China would say, yeah, we're going to ease off on that energy from you because there's a lot of other sources. You know, we saw when the sanctions were introduced, Saudi, you know, picked up the slack with minimal effort. So China knows it's got sources. I think it doesn't need Iran's oil the way Iran needs China's market. So again, I think China's got quite a bit of leverage in Tehran more than any other great power, I'd say. Well, let's turn our attention to the book. It's called The Handbook on China-Middle East Relations. It just came out. You really assembled the all-stars of China-Middle East scholars. I mean, it really is impressive, the list of people you have contributing and where they've come from. Talk to us a little bit about what you were trying to achieve with this book and what the story you're trying to tell. Well, okay. So first of all, you're right. I mean, the people that contributed, it, it, it was so fun. Sending email to some of these people, I was like a fan, you know, like sending baseball cards to my favorite players and getting them to sign it, send it back to me kind of thing. It's like fantasy football, fantasy China, Africa, China, Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no doubt. Like my, my wife would just be rolling her eyes. I'd come downstairs like, you won't believe who just wrote back. And, you know, it was really, really fun to put it together. So the genesis, I guess I was sitting in Beijing in 2019 in the fall and I was just thinking, you know, making a list of all the things, the papers and, and books that I wanted to write. And 
I was just thinking like there's so many things, like there's so much ground to cover and there's so much stuff that I just don't know enough about. And as I started kind of scribbling and taking notes, I was like, yeah, you know, it'd be really great if this person wrote about this subject because then I could learn something that I, you know, don't know enough about. And, you know, then I just started thinking, well, yeah, what would that look like? Like, who would I want to write on which topics? And I made a really long list. And most people were, were pretty enthusiastic. Like, almost everybody said yes. A couple of people were, were uh, unable. COVID, of course, you know, reprioritized a couple of people's commitments. And, and some people had to drop out. But, yeah, mostly, like, people, uh, when, I, when I contacted them, they, they were really uh, keen. It's kind of like we're making a, I don't know, like the traveling Wilburys or something. Like we're making the China Mina super, super band. So yeah, it was a lot of fun to, a lot of fun to put together. And what's the story you were trying to tell by putting together all of these contributors and the different chapters? What is the message that people should expect to take away from the book? Well, I guess it's just, as you were saying in the intro, there's no like one story. There's like, well, in this book, there's at least 26, right? There's 26 chapters. It's just, you know, it's, it, it was possible even, say, 12, 15 years ago to look at the China-Middle East relations and really reduce it to trade and even to just reduce that to, you know, Chinese manufactured goods for oil. And that's just changed so much, you know, in, over the past 15 years. You know, like, there's a lot of stuff like, uh, you know, the tech um, Rob Mogenlicki from the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington wrote a really great chapter on, on Chinese tech investment and Chinese tech companies and what they're doing, in, in, mostly in the Gulf, but also a little in North Africa. Just so many of these, these interesting, to me, fascinating chapters. Like we had kind of a big picture intro where I think there were four chapters just looking at you know, the, the regional landscape, what, what are the strategic questions that get raised by, by this deeper engagement. And then a really deep set of regional and country-specific case studies. So I think every subregion is covered, and, and most of the uh, important countries are looked at. And then you know across uh, economic and political issues. So we tried to cover the gamut, and like you said, it's a pretty diverse group. So I don't have the breakdown in front of me, but um, there were a lot of people from the Middle East who wrote. There were a lot of people from China. Unfortunately, not as many as initially were envisioned. Uh, some people had to drop out. The situation for Chinese scholars cooperating with international scholars over the past, you know, 2021 was pretty tough. And so some people just kind of quietly had to, to drop out and were apologetic. But, you know, so there's, there's quite a few Chinese scholars, and overseas Chinese as well. I mean, that's quite common today now, isn't it? It's very difficult for Chinese scholars to engage with the outside world, right? It is. It's been tougher. But I'm seeing signs just over the past two months that it might be getting a little easier. I'm getting invitations to speak at different things, whereas in 2021, that almost never happened. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think maybe we're seeing a, a thaw. Basically, it was, I think, a pretty good spread. There were some, some international folks like me who aren't from either side but are, are fascinated by both. So I think it's a pretty good representation. It's also good that we got a good range of different places in people's careers. We had some emeritus profs. We had senior, like, full professors. We had PhD candidates. So I think, I think it's a really, to me, it's the most comprehensive and the most diverse book that's come out on China and the Middle East so far. In your own um, in chapter, which provides a kind of an overview of, of how China emerged as a Middle East power, you, you start off with, with this quote saying that, you know, China basically became a Middle East power gradually and then suddenly all at once. Um, so this was just a, you know, kind of a striking kind of way of putting it for, for me. And and I was I was wondering kind of what are some, what were some of the legacy factors that, that, you know, which we saw kind of slowly developing over time and what are some of the, the new factors that, that we're seeing emerging right now? Yeah, well, I wish I could take credit for the slowly and suddenly, but that was from Hemingway. I think one of his characters, like, how did you go bankrupt slowly and then suddenly? And um, I think the same thing. Like, so I've been reading and thinking and writing about this every day for about 12 years now. So it's not been a sudden thing for me. But again, it seemed to catch a lot of people off guard, I'd, I'd say around 2019, when especially in the U.S., people started to take notice that 
China wasn't just, you know, an economic actor in the Gulf anymore, but it was political and it was diplomatic and it was doing a lot of cultural stuff and increasingly, you know, taking a, a role in security and arms sales and things like this. So I think that's the suddenly that people just kind of took notice and went, whoa, like this is a much deeper presence than we had initially thought. But it's been hiding in plain sight, right? Like the the China Arab States Cooperation Forum has been, I think it was enacted in the, you know, earlier in the first decade of the century, I think it was 2004. And every two years they have these ministerial meetings where they talk about what they want to do for the next two years. In 2014, China rolled out this really kind of clunky one plus two plus three cooperation framework. And it didn't really get a lot of notice, but they said these are the things that we prioritize in developing relations with Arab countries. And uh, so each one of these parts of the uh, equation, one is energy, traditional hydrocarbons, two is trade investment and infrastructure, three is renewables, nuclear and tech. And so they said, this is what we're going to be doing going forward. We've, you know, energy, of course, is at the core of, of everything they've been doing, especially here in the Gulf. But, you know, these are the, the I guess, the, the suddenly bit of your question, the things that have gotten a, kind of come to the forefront, especially tech. And this is interesting to me because China and Middle East companies have been working on, you know, Huawei is very deeply entrenched here and they've been working on 5G for a long time. They've been working on, on the Beidou space satellite systems for a long time. They've been working on FinTech and, and, you know, all this stuff really, you know, before they announced it in 2014. But I think it's really in 2019 when you saw Washington start to notice just how deep this was. And that's when you started hearing all the frustration about Huawei and, and the 5G networks. So those things, again, like it, it seemed sudden, but it had been moving in, in the open for quite a while. And that's why it's tough when Washington comes to a Middle Eastern country and says, dismantle your Chinese 5, 5G. And the first question is, you know, what do you have as an alternative? Well, you don't. So, you know, by Ericsson, I guess. Two, it's not like we're loaded. You think we can just rip up all this physical infrastructure we've put in place for this system and start all over again. And three, we don't have the same issues with China that you do. So why should we, why should we uh, start over again? And I guess four, if I'm going to be cheeky about it, is Washington keeps telling everybody, you don't know how China's going to use this data. Well, they could just turn around and say, well, we do know how your tech companies use our data because Ed Snowden told us, and we know what Facebook is doing in, in other countries. It's not being regulated like it is in the US. So, you know, I think the, the, the tech sector is especially troubling, I, I understand, for the US, but in the region, it's, it's something that's been in play for quite a while. And it's already, I think, a, a pretty deep part of the relationship. Yeah, and I mean, it, it goes beyond the tech sector in that uh, there's been a lot of concern about the UAE's relationship with China on the F-35, which was a big problem that the United States was concerned that the United Arab Emirates was going to buy F-35s and that technology would then be transferred to the Chinese. The F-35 deal fell through. Then there was concern about that there was a secret Chinese military base that was supposedly being built in the UAE as well and that the United States conveyed its displeasure to uh, the folks in Abu Dhabi about that. There's just been growing anxiety in Washington, as we mentioned at the top of the show, about the closer relationships, both in Israel, in the UAE, even in Egypt as well. Talk to us a little bit about the the way that Arab leaders are balancing these concerns from the United States with their interests with the Chinese and how they don't want to alienate the United States at the same time either. Right. So I don't know what this installation in Abu Dhabi was. I mean, the Anwar Gargash, who was the former Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, and now he's the presidential advisor, he said that that's a, a mischaracterization of what the project was. He hasn't said what it was, but he said there was no military application. So, you know, that's contested. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I do know a lot of different governments in the Emirates, like different embassies, were quite concerned about it. So I think there, there might be some more than smoke, but I, I don't think it's as cut and dried as they're trying to build a base here, because that would be really hard to pull off. Um, and I think really that story to me, the, the big problem I have with that is, you know, if China did have something here, it would fundamentally change the relationship between the UAE and the US in a way that's not necessarily in China's interests, right? 
you know, like China benefits like everybody does from the U.S. Navy patrolling the Gulf and, and, and keeping it stable. And China would be very exposed. It, doesn't, it wouldn't have any connective, you know, other bases to, to connect it to. You know, it, it, it just seems very unusual that that would be uh, done here. But you're right. That's, I guess, the other thing besides the tech is that China's stepping up in other ways. And, and security is one of them. Whatever it is they were doing here, it, it angered the U.S. The F-35, I think their, their concern was that Chinese software or China's infrastructure for different digital programs would either compromise um, U.S. systems or collect information in a way that they don't want. You know, you see other stuff, right? So there was, in December, CNN reported that China's helping Saudi develop a ballistic missile program. And that really, I mean, that's, that was the, the thing that really put those two countries on the path towards official diplomatic relations was back in the 80s. Saudi wanted ballistic missiles during the war between Iran and Iraq, and the U.S. couldn't sell them um, because of pressure from the uh, Israeli lobby in Washington. So, you know, the Saudis had two other choices, the Russians or the Chinese, and they were so anti-Soviets that they quietly went to China, bought these ballistic missiles, and within no time had uh, resumed diplomatic relations. So I think what's interesting is is that China is, in the past, the way I always saw it was China was willing to play a lesser role in some of those more strategic sectors because they didn't want, A, to alienate the U.S., or B, cause any tension between the U.S. and its allies and partners. So, you know, they could do things like sell UAVs because the U.S., doesn't sell armed drones in, in, in the Middle East. So China could say, well, look, we're not cutting into your market. We're selling something you don't sell. Um, but otherwise, they always seem to kind of play a more modest role in, in those areas. And again, I think with the trade war, is what I keep you know looking at is this, this uh, inflection point. China prob- probably looked at their massive interest in the Gulf and thought, well, look, if it's great power competition is driving their, their security and defense and foreign policies, then we have to play a more robust role in places where we have deep interests. So that means, okay, maybe we work with the Saudis on missiles and maybe we work with the UAE on, on other strategic things that in the past we wouldn't. Um, I, so I think, yeah, we are seeing a much more strategic approach to the region from China and one that's increasingly asserting itself as an alternative to the way the U.S. does the region. So it's really interesting time to be watching this stuff. You know, based based on the the kind of writing in the book, um, w- you know, how, what do you think is the calculation among? I mean, this is a broad question, but what is the calculation among Middle East governments in terms of what, in the first place, what they would like China to do, and then in the second place, what the trajectory is of U.S. of future U.S. engagement in the region, and whether you know, kind of whether the U.S. will maintain or whether there will be a decline in engagement. So, and you know, maybe a different way of asking this is. Are they thinking that China is going to replace the U.S. in providing certain kind of shared goods in the region, or are they actually looking for something else from from China that the U.S. that isn't really on the menu of what the U.S. would like to provide? Well, I think if they're expecting China to replace the U.S. wholesale, they're dramatically uh, misguided because China's indicated that they have no interest in that. And again, with their non-alliance policy, it's pretty clear that they wouldn't have that kind of role. I think what Middle East leaders see in China, you know, it's what all of us see, right? If you're you're watching international politics, you see that, you know, we're we're undergoing a regional, like an international order restructuring. You know, this liberal international order that the U.S. led after the Cold War isn't going to cut it anymore. And you're seeing China acting more independently and Russia is, and the EU is, and a lot of countries are, are kind of making provision for what's changing. And in the Middle East, I mean, good or bad, um, external powers have always been a big deal here, whether it's the Ottomans or the British or the Americans, because it's a strategically really important part of the world. So they're used to having outside actors play a big role, but they look at the US and they listen to every American politician and every U.S. military leader, they've identified the Indo-Pacific as their priority theater. They've identified strategic competition as the framework for um, their security foreign policy. They've got this, uh, what is it, the one plus two framework. So 
or sorry, the two plus three framework. So the two biggest threats to American interests they've identified as Russia and China, and the three secondary ones are Iran, uh, North Korea, and terrorism. So it really looks like there's less and less anchoring the Middle East, or sorry, the U.S. and the Middle East. And um, I think the leaders and publics in the Middle East can see that, and they're thinking, well, we need to make provisions on our own. We can't expect the U.S. to continue uh, leading this region, for good or bad. I mean, Pax Americana hasn't always looked very Pax-like here. Um, so maybe they're, they're reading the writing on the wall. I don't think it's a matter of us or them, like U.S. or China. I think they look at it as it's a much more fluid um, system, and they've got a lot of different powerful countries to work with. I mean, they can... If, if they aren't getting what they need from the U.S., then they can turn to China, but they can also turn to India. Or like we saw this week, they can turn to South Korea and buy missiles. You know, there's a lot of countries that have deep, deep interests in the Gulf. You know, all of their biggest trading partners are, are almost all Asian. So you can see countries like Japan, Korea, India, China, of course, Indonesia. I mean, these countries are all deeply engaged here. And I think what's happening is Gulf leaders are actively participating in this. The year before COVID, so in 2019, the Crown Prince of, of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, traveled to, God, I don't know how many Asian countries, but he'd been, just in, in, in a couple of years, he'd been to India, Pakistan, China, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, signing massive investment deals and, and diplomatic partnership agreements. So yeah, they're looking to a more diverse playing field not one where the U.S. calls all the shots. And I think they're just trying to also hedge their bets and, and try to get as many powerful countries on their side as possible. I think the reason why China is so striking to so many people, A, is, you know, it's, it's a dramatic story. Everything China does, uh, it's going to sell newspapers. But also, most of those countries I've just listed are U.S. allies or partners. So you don't really expect a, a big change in how they would engage with the region. But China is you know the U.S.'s main strategic competitor. So everything it does brings that edge to it as well and makes it... And also the fact that, that it's got the Belt and Road, they've, they've got this roadmap saying this is how we're going to do what we want to do. So it, it does look like a, a, a more organized challenge, I think, to, to folks in Washington. Well, let's close our discussion on a topic that didn't seem to come up directly in your book, but as you heard in the introduction from some of the comments those playing from that webinar from the Middle East Policy Institute, human rights and specifically the question of Xinjiang is a big issue in the United States and in the minds of many policymakers about it. Before we get to your take on this, I'd like to run a little bit of sound again from this webinar from the Middle East Policy Institute. Uh, this one comes from Camille Lons, who's a research associate in the Bahraini office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And she did a really, really nice job in laying out the Xinjiang question as it relates in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. There is a dimension also for China of regarding its own Muslim minorities. Uh, there are a few thousands of Chinese Uyghur fighters, for example, in countries like Syria or Iraq, and uh, that are of great concern uh, to, to China in case they return to, to the country and create instability. So Beijing has been keen to cooperate with some countries in the region to share information and potentially as well to, to deport some of these uh, 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 Uyghur fighters back to China. And there is also linked to this the reputational perspective as well. And on the international scene, uh, having support from a big Muslim majority countries and especially uh, 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 leaders of the Muslim world like Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, having support from these countries on, the, on the, the, the Uyghur file on the international scene, this is something that has been of, of great interest to, to Beijing as well. And just to clarify one point that, that Camille made, she talked about fighters, but there's also the question of deporting activists. Uh, it's been rumored that Saudi Arabia is preparing to deport two activists back to, to China, Uyghur activists. Also, Morocco uh, is purportedly ready to deport a, a Uyghur activist who was picked up while transiting from Turkey as well. So it's not just fighters, it's a lot. But Xinjiang does play a large role in this, and the, Uy the presence of Uyghurs in these countries is also very important as well. Uh, the, 
Arab world in particular and the Gulf has been very amenable to China's policies in Xinjiang, has not gone along with the United States in condemning any of it. So tell us a little bit about the dynamics that are at play with respect to this issue that figures prominently in the minds of many Americans, but also is very important to China as well. Mm. Well, first, Camilla's great. She's she's brilliant. I love whenever she writes anything or when she, she speaks publicly. She's really... Uh, Definitely somebody to follow on the region. On Xinjiang, it's interesting because I know that Western governments have actively been using that as a wedge issue to try to create space between China and countries in the region. And it just hasn't worked. You know, that hasn't gotten any traction. And it, I think, frustrates a lot of people because they see it as some kind of fundamental, I don't know if it's hypocrisy or, or some contradiction with how can you be a leader of the Muslim world on the one hand and not do this on the other. And I think just the pressures that, you know, like when, when Camille talked about the fighters, you know, that adds a, a nuance to it that I think often gets lost. Like there are issues that China might have that, that isn't always talked about in these stories. I do think what China's doing in Xinjiang, you know, I'm a, I'm a Western liberal, so obviously I think it's awful, but I don't think everybody's a Western liberal. And I think a lot of leaders in the Middle East, when they hear Western countries talk about it, they think, A, you know, like, who are you to talk about anybody on, on human rights, given a lot of the horrible things that you've done? And I don't think that's a very good justification or explanation. But I think the other thing that they'll often say is when they talk to Chinese leaders about Xinjiang, and I know that it happens a lot, China's pretty consistent in saying, Political Islam is, is an ideology that they consider a threat to the state and to the party, which, you know, obviously the party is more important than the state in China. And this is how we're dealing with it. We're, we're taking these, this religious ideology and, you know, if you don't like it, tough, but that's how we're, how we're dealing with it. And a lot of countries in the Middle East also have political Islam as, as one of the political threats to different governments, right? Like uh, when the Muslim Brotherhood won the election, the presidential election in Egypt, you saw how quickly a lot of Middle Eastern countries dropped relations with Egypt, like a hot potato. They consider this a really big threat. And when China says, this is how we're handling with this, this ideology that's threatening to create a separatist movement or a revolutionary movement, you know, that resonates. A lot of countries here are worried about their own, especially in the, the wake of the Arab Spring, you know, they're, they're worried about how these political actors might challenge state power. So I, I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but I think that's a big part of the logic is that this is an area where they maybe don't think like religious leaders, they think about leaders of a government that, they, that they're concerned about it remaining stable. I think another issue is there's been a lot of competition within the Sunni Muslim world. You know, Saudi has always kind of acted as a, a, a leader of, of Sunni Islam. And under Erdogan, Turkey has been pursuing that role a little more vigorously. And we've seen a lot of tension between Saudi and the UAE and, and some of their partners and Turkey. You know, if you remember the, the Khashoggi killing in Istanbul and how Turkey was just steadily drip, drip, dripping uh, news about it to, to make things as uncomfortable as possible for the Saudi government. They've been at each other for quite a while now. And I think there might be, I don't know, but I think there might be some political aspect to it as well, where, you know, Middle Eastern governments would say, look, the Uyghurs are a Turkic people. This is Turkey's problem. You know, why aren't they doing more? And for Turkey, that's a really tough needle to thread because every time, you know, like when the foreign minister went, that was in his, his uh, call sheets. He said, you know, we, we talked, uh, I conveyed our position on, on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. Didn't say what he said, but he, he, he had to say he'd done something about it. And the Turkish foreign minister, I think in 2019, issued a pretty harsh rebuke of China on Xinjiang. And then Erdogan went to China shortly after, and you know Beijing released a statement saying he praised them for, for China's approach to, to the Uyghur question. So, and, and Turkey didn't push back. So you know that might be, I guess, the last part of the puzzle is there might be you know, some kind of concern about you know, we, we've all seen China's economic statecraft can be, you know, very uh, beneficial. But if you do something like give Liu Xiaobo the, the Nobel Peace Prize, or if you let, you know, the U.S. put a THAAD 
system in, on, on, in your country, you get the sharp end of it pretty fast. And no country in the Middle East has, has experienced coercive economic statecraft from China yet. And they all know if you, if you cross those lines, talking about Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, or Hong Kong, you're going to make Beijing very angry. So that could be yet another thing. Like they, all, the, all the points I just mentioned, and then realizing that the costs would be substantial and the rewards would be pretty minimal. So I don't see it. I mean, I, I know from a human rights perspective, it's, it's, a, it's terrible what's happening. But just being here in the region for as long as I have, it's not the hot button issue. I think that a lot of capital cities in the West think it is for people here. Yeah, that's the same in other parts of the world here right. in Asia as well. It's not the hot button, nor in, in, in Africa as well. The book is The Routledge Handbook on China-Middle East Relations. It was edited by Jonathan Fulton, but as we've discussed, it includes the who's who, the all-stars, the best of the China-Middle East, China-Persian Gulf, China-MENA world. Uh, cannot recommend it enough. I am hoping that policymakers and think tank analysts who are in Washington, who are thinking about these issues, will go out and get the book. It is available on Amazon. I highly recommend you get the Kindle version, just $45, very reasonably priced. The hardback, I won't even say how much it is. It's really expensive. It's really expensive. But the Kindle version is available now. It's really expensive, but it feels really great to buy, I'm told. Uh, Multiple copies. There we go. It makes for a good stocking stuff. Yeah, yeah, for the nerd in your life. (laughs) I have to shamelessly plug one other thing. I mean, thanks for the, the opportunity to talk about the book, but... Um, I'm following your footsteps and I'm going to be hosting a podcast. Um, we're recording today on the 24th, but my first um, pilot is going to come out on the 25th and it's just going to be a short intro. But uh, same thing, I'm going to be talking to kind of the who's who of China-Mina relations over the next year and a half. And uh, it's going to be called the China-Mina podcast. It's being produced through the Atlanta Council where I'm a non-resident fellow and uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. We've got some really great guests lined up. That's fan. Fantastic. We will include links to each episode awesome. Thank you. Uh, uh, in our Twitter feed and also in our newsletter. And we will showcase some of the, the commentary that comes out of this podcast because the conversations you're going to have with these folks is going to be, I'm just, I can't wait to listen to it. So uh, again, we're going to have you back once your podcast is up to kind of get a sense of what uh, is going. You can follow the podcast and the book, I'll put links to all of this in the show notes because by the time this show goes out, we should have a podcast link. And if it's not, I'll post it on the China Africa Project Twitter feed for you to download the podcast as well. Jonathan, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I guess like everybody, it's with Twitter at Jonathan D. Fulton. Okay, I'll put another link to that. Jonathan Fulton, thank you so much for taking the time to join us once again. Congratulations on the book and best of luck with the podcast. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Kobus, just after we finished our discussion with Jonathan, it's interesting, a story crossed on the line that said, Iran will consider direct talks with the U.S., says foreign minister. This is on uh, Al Jazeera there. And, And that got me thinking about what Jonathan was saying, how China may in fact be nudging the Iranians into the JCPOA talks, and it again reaffirms this idea that at least when it comes to Iran, that the United States and China may have far more alignment than they have differences with one another. And we've seen this in a number of instances where the Chinese and the U.S. do have common interests, but it's difficult for them to be able to to take advantage of those commonalities simply because the political space of maneuver now is so limited by the fact that extremists on both sides are driving the politics. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, that's the one problem um, is that, is that there's just this kind of like zero sum kind of discourse about, you know, on both the Chinese and the US side. I think another problem is that is a kind of a remnant of the axis of evil logic, you know, kind of this idea that not only are these countries like China, Russia, and Iran, the the enemy of the US or like a po- fundamentally opposed to the US, but also there's this kind of assumption at the same time that they are in some kind of way in cahoots, you know, which I think is, is, is a, you know, like... Obviously, these countries frequently are kind of driven into alliances because they face a, a lot of kind of hostility. But at the same time, 
to pretend that that they have the same kind of set of priorities is just unrealistic. You know, kind of it makes it harder to to talk about I think, the much more realistic kind of situation that Jonathan suggested, where that that for example China is gently trying to nudge Iran into a position that the current Biden administration would actually also appreciate. Well, this speaks to the idea that Iran, despite what many people in Washington think, is simply not the big priority to China as many assume it is. We've heard this over and over again that China's relations with the UAE and Saudi Arabia are far more strategically important than they are with Iran. And and again, I think we always have to keep coming back to that, even though Iran looms very, very large in the American imagination and the American foreign policy priority and kind of the hierarchy of needs. But to China right now, this big $400 billion deal is really still very resonant in the American media and the American narrative. And you're hearing conservatives on Fox News and others use that as a talking point to justify how what you're saying, this collusion between Iran and China. That being said, though, we have to be cautious of this, that the importation of Iranian oil into China, and now we're hearing that last year Venezuela was also working closely with China to launder its oil to sidestep U.S. sanctions. That is something that is very interesting because that is the financial lifeline for both governments. Yeah, I mean, it also it, it just, you know, it, it, it then puts... But, you know, like raises a lot of questions around these kind of uses of sanctions, you know, kind of and whether whether these sanctions regimes really are the most effective way of getting these governments to play ball or whether it then, you know, kind of which is which is I think something that was true, you know, even in a very successful application of sanctions, like in the case of apartheid South Africa, where the entire kind of apparatus of the state then gets rearranged in order to to become a kind of a machine to bypass sanctions you know so so the sanctions re rewires the state that they're supposed to be changing in a way that they're not supposed to do and that you know kind of so so sanctions is such a blunt instrument um that you know kind of that that i think there's a lot of questions to ask there about whether there might be other ways of getting you know of, of, of putting pressure on these governments in order to you know to, to just kind of get them back in line well sanctions worked very well during the cold Cold War because there were two poles. There was the Soviets and the Americans, and the United States had much more control over its pole and its side of the fence than it does today. In a multipolar world as we live in today, the sanctions aren't anywhere near as effective because as we're seeing, countries that are under U.S. sanctions, whether it's Myanmar or now Ethiopia, Venezuela, Iran, the list is very long, can simply turn to other providers of services and oil and access to capital and whatnot, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, the Venezuelans. So all of this economy is set up, as you pointed out, to to undermine these sanctions. And also, let's not forget that China has a passionate aversion to these sanctions. And it is really, this is the hill that they're going to die on, because you see in Ethiopia, they are standing firm with the Ethiopians to push back on sanctions. They are pushing back in Sudan, in Guinea, probably in Burkina Faso, now that uh, that government has toppled, and sanctions will invariably come. So the Chinese, they, they just, they hate these sanctions. And so them buying oil from the Iranians and the Venezuelans is just one other way to undermine the effectiveness of, of sanctions as a rule. And then it's interesting because it doesn't seem like the Americans have any other foreign policy tool to go to other than sanctions. That's all they seem to have. Even in the dispute with Putin over Ukraine, the first thing coming out of Biden's mouth is we're going to put sanctions on. In fact, today they were saying we're going to sanction Putin himself. And I'm just not that sure that people are as afraid of American sanctions today as they were, say, 20, 30 years ago. The generals in Myanmar, when they were confronted with U.S. sanctions, they said, listen, we've been under your sanctions for 20 years. Doesn't matter to us. Go ahead. Put more sanctions on us. We don't really care. And I think that's a lot of governments now are seeing that you can not only survive under U.S. sanctions, but as in the case of China or even some other countries, you can do okay. You'll do fine. China, by the way, is under U.S. sanctions because of Xinjiang and some other things. So it's a different world out there, and I don't get the sense that U.S. policy has evolved, and I don't know if they have an answer for what they do beyond sanctions. Yeah, yeah, you know, that that's, that is the one side of it. The other side of it is, is, is also that that it's, you know, kind of that I think particularly in relation to kind of Western Asia slash the Middle East, um, you know, kind of it's, it's really important to to have a full conversation about, about what 
the the role of the both positive and negative role that that the United States plays in that region, and whether it still wants to keep playing that role into the future. You know, um, because so much so much of the kind of calculations made by these governments, you know, that is the major factor. You know, according to which they 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 calculate also their their relations with with China. So. You know, like I, I find it a little bit like it's 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 really obviously we, we see we see these kind of like ideological kind of reshaping of the discourse in in the Africa China space a lot, but I think you know kind of in the case of the Middle East it's even more, um, you know, where it's it's very difficult to have a really realistic conversation about about what the the role of China is and what the emerging role of China is because the conversation itself is so kind of pulled to all kinds of sides. Well, let's leave the conversation there. We're going to be picking up the Middle East again because there is just so much activity that's going on. And also because starting in March, we'll have our new Arabic service that will be online. We have our new Arabic editor who's going to be writing and contributing and just really hope, you know, generating so much new content for us to pump into our English language content feeds as well as our new French language content feeds. And of course, on the new Arabic site as well. And Cobus. Very big week this week. We are now in Spanish as well through a wonderful partnership with the website africamundi.es. Your columns every month are going to be translated into Spanish for an Hispanic audience in Latin America and Spain. So that is super cool. So you'll be in Spanish, Arabic, French, English. Not bad. I'm very excited. It's, it's really, it's really amazing to see to see that actually. And just the guys over at Africa Mundi are just so fantastic. So if you are Spanish speaking, interested in following events in both Spain, Africa relations, increasingly LATAM and Africa relations, and you are a fluent Spanish speaker, then I highly recommend you go and sign up for a subscription at africamundi.es. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then, of course, if you would like to join our community, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe, or join our wonderful Patreon community of amazing members who are just having these great conversations with us and having a lot of fun. We've been having happy hours, Zoom calls. They get a weekly digest. Every once in a while, I post uh, stories in from that we've written during the week just to kind of keep things moving. And then people are also just reaching out impromptu and saying, I'm working on a story or I've got a homework project. Can you help us with it? And we love engaging with our Patreon members there as well. Patreon.com slash China Africa Project. It's a great way to support the show and to support independent journalism. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.